Hello and welcome to episode 332 of the Creighton Crowbar. It is the 15th of July 2020. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Marsh Davies. Hello. And Tom Senior. Hello. Marsh, I believe you are in prime position to tell us what Jeff's done now. <laughs> yes, uh, Jeff Keeley released um, The Final Hours of Half-Life Alex, uh, which is his... By himself? <laughs> Well, pres- presumably not, because it's quite an elaborate multimedia venture, um, which actually encompasses presumably part of the Half-Life 2 engine in order to display models and allow you to kind of slickly rotate them and, an- and animate them and things uh, within the flow of what is otherwise an article, which is the sort of not just the making of Half-Life Alex, which would have been interesting in itself, but also the sort of not making of the several games that preceded it. Uh, and were aborted by uh, Valve, and it's um, it's really interesting. It's really interesting because of the level of access that Big Jeff has got to Valve across the course of many years, um, which just by itself uh, allows you to find out things that were previously undisclosed about this formerly quite secretive uh, <laughs> company. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but as a sort of journalistic venture, it has quite a lot of question marks above it. I mean, I noticed a large number of inaccuracies in it and assumptions which uh, just didn't seem like they were credible and um, descriptions of things that just don't really make sense. So it's, <laughs> in, in, some, in some ways, um, it, I, I found it quite annoying because uh, I, I feel like with the huge amount of resources and access that clearly uh, underpin this, it could have been a, a kind of just a, a slam dunk. Oh, this is the best making of ever. <laughs> right. Or the best insight uh, into Valve ever, I guess. I, I, it probably still is that mm. uh, as it happens, even if there are things about it, which you think, well, I don't know that that doesn't really match up with, I mean, to the extent that he actually quotes from an interview that I did with Gabe Newell and he gets the <laughs> quote completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and you were there. So, uh, and I was literally there and wrote it. So um, yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's question marks above it. And also there's things like, even down to things like uh, the timing of things don't match up with stuff that, um, yeah. was at least the word on the street as it were during during the course of the development of these things but principally the kind of most um, um, interesting thing about it is that valve has long sort of championed itself as being this sort of school for the gifted uh in c- completely flat hierarchy people work on whatever projects they want to and uh they just kind of wheel their desks over to whichever little scrum team is is making whatever thing um and for a long time, people outside of this were like, well, how does that really work? And the answer was, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, they still made great work, I'm sure, but never managed to get it to the stage where it picked up enough momentum to reach completion on on, on many projects. I, I don't remember the exact number of uh, canned projects, but it is a substantial number. And uh, it's also difficult to track and definitively say how many projects were canned because... Um, you know, you've worked at game studios, you know this, that projects are often fragmentary and then one thing bleeds into another and mm-hmm. then uh, something can start out as one thing and then end up as a different project. So it's it's not quite, you know, cut and dry, but it's at least five, you know, fairly distinct, fairly substantial projects, including previous versions of Half-Life 3, which at certain points was also a VR game uh, and then not, and then... Um, 
there's a an RPG game which is referred to as a sort of Souls like game, and then there's uh, Arty, which is a sort of Minecraft ish game that was also canned. Lots and lots of canned stuff, basically. Um, and it seems like having spent years canning games and not really getting anything out the door, um, there was a sort of change within the not so much the hierarchy, but sort of um, the group think within valve that actually maybe it isn't a good idea just to work on things that you want to work on you should just suck it up <laughs> everybody works works on a project to get it out the door even if it's not the one thing that you're most keen on um and the result of that was half-life alex hmm. um by, by all accounts is very good so there you go yeah it's super interesting i've only i haven't had a chance to dig into it myself i've only had the second hand uh account of the the various revelations in it i will say i kind of second what you said about some dates not matching up because i had my own access to valve over the last couple of years of my well the particularly the esports and dota span of my journalism career and you hear things people talk i always found that valve were the most extraordinarily closed off company from the outside and once you're inside people just talk freely about anything um, to the extent yeah. that you censor yourself in terms of not, you know, <laughs> not wanting to ruin someone's work by saying, you know, repeating something you've heard, but maybe shouldn't have done. Um, but there were dates in, in, uh, that I, I saw from the final hours of Alex, uh, thing that didn't line up with things I'd heard, um, or even seen, um, hmm. sometimes years before or years after. So there's some kind of question marks there, although the whole thing does kind of ring quite true. Cause I do remember that era of peak wheelie desk. And, <laughs> and how much faith there was that that system that that came hand in hand to me with absolute faith in the data that steam could garner and the notion mm. that the audience couldn't be wrong. And it feels like both of those assumptions have had to be challenged that sometimes you have to make decisions on behalf of the audience for the audience's own good, because no big group of people will ever really necessarily agree on the exact type of entertainment they'd like or the exact ideal form for the sequel they might want or anything like that. And similarly, um, no group of developers is necessarily ever going to 100% agree on a vision for a project or something like that. And someone can't make a decision one way or another. Yeah. Um, you know? I have to say I quite like hierarchies. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes when it comes to actually putting out a thing, you do, do need people, somebody at the top to, to make a decision often and quite quickly. And sometimes it doesn't really matter if that decision is arbitrary or even the wrong one. It just needs to be made. <laughs> right. Uh, I think there are healthy I think there are healthy and unhealthy ways for this to manifest, obviously. Um, of course, yeah. And I think I genuinely think there is something in the kind of fluidity that Valve was striking for. But I think the problem is, as you say, that they were trying to achieve it using not even just sort of like absolute democracy, but a kind of party game-esque uh, sort of uh, like uh, musical chairs system of structuring a team. Like I think mm. I think I think it's tied into a lot of things for Valve. And this, these are all outside observations, I would stress. But I think another side of it is a real aversion to having a management layer or or any of the soft skills that kind of exist in a studio they really wanted to hire programmers and artists and have them manage themselves to some extent and vote with their wheels um and i think you know something i'm rapidly discovering is and we were saying this before the show uh, producers can be magical people um mm. and, and so can directors and because they can bring the best out of teams and and the other side of that is your problems can definitely set in if, if one person's at the top for too long or, or you don't challenge those decisions sometimes or you don't bring people up. But I think a healthier way of achieving the thing that Valve were going for is to 
um, put teams together for a project, give get those projects done, and then give other people a chance at leadership and raise up people with a bit of leadership experience in that way. I think the industry is traditionally quite bad at that. Um, and it often ends up with entrenched leadership at studios. Um, yeah. But the, yeah, it's, it's, I feel like a miserable centrist uh, for saying that <laughs> this is the most lib dem opinion I will have about games production, but like, so total anarchy just doesn't work. Um, <laughs> you know, I, a bath resident, have decided <laughs> um, in the context of the production of games about wizards, is, is the, I'll, I'll limit that particular stance uh, to that for the time being. Um, but yeah fascinating to see it kind of in much more in the public eye though yeah and they've been quite open about uh I, i'm interested to see if this uh openness continues in the in the mm. conclusion of the uh documentary is it still a documentary if it's largely text i don't know um but in the conclusion to it i mean uh, they suggest that they are, are keen to now crack on with other half-life projects potentially yeah um, they've sort of broken that that seal, uh, and and <laughs> the other the other tantalising, uh, possibly mad thing uh, that's in it. Gabe suggests that uh, they they will investigate more intrusive ways of uh, uh, creating immersion than VR or other like virtualization via not a uh, headset but direct. Uh, interference with your brain stem oh, is basically what it's going for, which um, yeah, which is uh, which is science fiction. Obviously. Yeah, well, it's a plot point from Half Life rather than a delivery <laughs> method for Half Life. <laughs> yeah, although I, you know, as mad as that is, I do agree with him that that's probably the only form of VR that would be totally acceptable to me. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, Tom, yeah. do you remember just thinking about the delivery mechanism for this whole thing? Tom, do you remember what was the thing? We did on PC Gamer like half a decade ago and released on Steam. Is it what I mean, like a back page joke or something? No, no, no. Like there was actually like an app, like a PC Gamer app. Oh. Didn't, do you remember this? It was like right, I think it was around the time you and I were starting. Like, maybe even when you were on PC Gamer, Marsh. But there was like mm. like a digital thing on Steam that was like some articles yeah. and some videos oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do actually know. Yeah, it was like we did, we did like two of them or something, I think. Yeah, I just didn't quite draw in the clicks or something, but um, yeah, it was a kind of an interesting. So I think Valve were quite interested in drawing in uh, games coverage from various sources and actually hosting them in Steam to an extent, yeah. um, which is an interesting experiment. But also, uh, in terms of like the way that revenue works online for publications, uh, giving other people your clicks is uh, a difficult decision to make, and uh, the same applies to lots <laughs> of uh, Facebook approaches in loads of different ways. To, with similar ideas of like, oh, can we host your content? Um, no, <laughs> not really. <laughs> um, there, might, there might be one day, one way it works. But I remember that was quite an interesting experiment. Steam could have been very different if it become a media platform as yeah, well. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because obviously, you know, like they did experiment putting documentaries and things, you know, on Steam for a while. Mm. And I suppose they still have some of the Dota stuff they've produced. But it's just interesting to me that like a lot of the interface for Final Hours of Half-Life Alex reminded me of that PC Gamer app from years mm. ago. And I, yeah. well, Edge, Edge have tried to do similar things with its yeah. iPad app as well. But I mean, it, it, the, the problem is all of these things have been constrained by the fact that, uh, uh, you know, you can't really make these things that templated. Yeah. Um, and this thing is obviously incredibly lavish and bespoke. 
and there are many widgets and doodads within it, mm. which you just couldn't do regularly, uh, <laughs> you know, at the same cadence that a magazine gets put out, not without like a huge Keely powered staff. Like, Polygon um, used to have a massive feature section when they first started out mm. and they were sort of in their early days. They were going to revolutionize games, as everyone says. Um, but they, they would do these kind of bespoke templated layouts with, you know, videos and sliders and all sorts of interactive elements. Um, and it was great, but having... Not cost effective. Yeah, yeah like they're very expensive to produce. But also, um, in my experience, of like running very, very long features online. People just don't want to read it yeah. very much. Like maybe like a thousand people will. Um, but that's just not enough to do the business if you're going to, you know, mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Um, so yeah, it's just a sort of market incentive, really. It's interesting because it feels like those kind of, that kind of coverage can only really exist as a bit of a vanity piece pr- pr- paid for by the studio that it's about. Mm. And that obviously, I'm not saying that's the case for Final House of Half-Life Alex, but it's definitely not been produced without Valve's kind of, um, like, uh, say so to some degree not least because it uses their game assets and is hosted on their store (laughs) so um like you know they make money from it directly and that feels like it's kind of both interesting and kind of you know well this is maybe a broader conversation about media that our audience wouldn't necessarily dig but it's just kind of you know i've definitely always got the sense that if you want to do that kind of lavish feature stuff someone's going to pay for it and in games that's almost always going to be the company that that most directly uh, features in the thing because that's the company for whom it acts as mm. a potentially a revenue driver literally in this case mm. so yeah would you like to hear um jeff Keeley's scoop on what would have uh, uh left the dead three been like had it meet, reached uh yeah production? yeah it would have contained hundreds of zombies what imagine what? that yeah yeah what? Scoop of the fucking century <laughs> jesus christ slow down jeff <laughs> you already cancelled E3. Christ. But also appealing about Jeff. I mean, he's kind of, um, he's a presenter first and foremost, isn't he, really? Mm. And he's also sort of completely harmless. And maybe yeah. that sort of draws studios to him. It's like he, he has, he's sort of almost mates with Kojima and gets really good access to his stuff as well. Um, yeah. It's yeah. like that was his good jawline. <laughs> I think, I mean, uh, obviously, one that's just sort of, um, sort of highly professional and non-controversial in the way that he presents games which mm. is uh appealing uh when you are someone with a game that you're concerned about it's you know uh, and also I, I don't think i don't think he's ever produced something in the kind of jason schreier mold of no. you know here is a you know a, uh, a fairly uh brutal dissection of what went wrong with a project for example it, t- it tends to pick his targets for stuff that's relatively universally liked i think so wow wow imagine jason shreer's take on the final hours of half-life alex right. just the, <laughs> yeah. the app would just be a series of pictures from people from valve crying probably <laughs> just, uh... yeah well this is the thing right like i i, I think uh, and obviously I, I am guilty of having made fun of jeff Keighley a few times on this podcast and i think it's it's because it's easy and fun but the what i would say is i don't think this kind of story would get out without a personality like that who's capable of drawing it out like putting yeah like i feel like being able to put a big corporation at ease is um a skill and also like but one that comes with heavy uh caveats in terms of your duty to ultimately kind of report something resembling the truth um yeah 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 i i mean i actually uh, don't think it would have been better served by something more excoriating yeah. i think it's just that you, you know occasionally there's a want of insight basically right. or, or you know what what in the single sentence in which he defines Left 4 Dead 3 
<laughs> it should answer the question of what was different about Left 4 Dead 3 from Left 4 Dead 2. Probably. Yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. But, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, I don't think this sort of thing would get made, even based on my own experience with Valve and being fairly friendly at one point. Like, hmm. I don't think this sort of thing would get made if it was, a you know, if it came from a, a different uh, position or a different sense of, hmm. of being on site. And I've definitely had that experience as a journalist where you do have to show that you understand the the kind of needs of the company that you're covering in order to get the story that ultimately maybe shines some light on something. It's not always possible to rely, you know, it's not always possible to get those sources otherwise. So kind of get it. And it's kind of cool that this story's finally come out. And I will say that. Yeah. And I, I hope that uh, in some way, Jeff can forgive me for the mean things I've said. Should we talk about the Ubisoft reveals that happened before the event yeah. that they uh, decided to reveal them all at because they released <laughs> Don't they always leak? UB is quite leaky, um, and not in the sense that sometimes things are intentionally leaked to get extra news cycle out of them. But like everything, just <laughs> you just know what you've started doing at all times, <laughs> mm. uh, which is fine. And, and just, but also like you could have predicted the slate of, of what's you know what they're actually producing for the next year or so anyway. Uh, yeah. But it's nice to see a bit of Valhalla and um, Watch Dogs Three is sort of still on the horizon. That's got some interesting ideas. Um, nothing particularly inspired me though, because it, it feels like Ubisoft games are so templated. As I've said this on the podcast before, it's just that I know exactly what the game is going to be, even if it looks different, it has a different theme. Mm. Um, though I, the Far Cry 4 cinematic trailer was quite interesting. The idea of kind of uh, being the son of El Presidente and uh, what, whether the game managed to treat that with um, <laughs> the sensitivity that uh, it deserves. That the series is definitely known for. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, I have to admit, so full disclosure, I didn't see any of the Ubisoft stuff, um, so I'm going to rely on you both to tell me what the games were like. I think I was most impressed by um, Valhalla, actually, which was surprising to me, because I thought that Watch Dogs would be the big draw um, for me. Actually, none of the stuff came out of the Ubisoft's own presentation, especially coherently, I thought. Mm. Um, whereas uh, the sort of subsequent wave of... Um, videos by third parties like pc gamer and rock paper shotgun etc did a much better job i think of <laughs> advertising this stuff to me than their own advertisements um but yeah i have some reservations about uh valhalla because it's just it, it, it's not the <laughs> it's not the viking slash medieval britain dark, sorry dark ages britain fantasy that uh i particularly personally want mm. but it uh it nonetheless looks like it has some fucking great stabbing lots of axe throwing you can, uh, you can you can materialize axes in your hands magically and throw them. That's good. It seems like a lot. Uh, they've really leaned in towards the magical stuff a bit more. I know that there's a big thing in Odyssey, um, but mm, you, yeah, you just explicitly the boss fight they showed was just fighting the lightning god, <laughs> you can summon lightning from the sky, um, which is fine. But I don't know whether like I kind of miss the ambiguity in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Obviously, that doesn't last. Like there are just explicitly fantastical mythical things happening in that game. Um, but I love the way it's introduced really subtly. Um, I wonder if Valhalla would just be sort of supernatural right away throughout the whole game. Yeah, right. I didn't come away from Watch Dogs feeling particularly enthusiastic, actually. Mm. Uh, this sort of cavalcade of British caricatures uh, didn't didn't sit right with me at all. But actually, I think it was just more of the the, the tone of the entire presentation, which was just it was going for more of the sort of wacky gta 3 era open world knockabout nonsense thing rather than high-tech intrigue in a highly authoritarian britain 
which is what I thought it was mm. meant to be. Yeah, so it's an interesting. It seems like it's stranded between Watch Dogs One and Two, really. Cause I, I really enjoyed the tone of Watch Dogs Two, um, whereas like all the marketing made it look like it would be unbearable, uh, like trying to uh, come up with these young hackers and uh, make them cool, but actually just makes them all quite nice nerds. Um, and like the, you can go around killing people, but if you play it non-lethally, like the, uh, the, the main character is actually an interesting guy to play and it's a very sunny quite silly sandbox in the end um whereas if, it, if it's like sort of nighttime all the time and it's post-brexit britain and everything's got to shit <laughs> that doesn't quite sit along that tone really uh so i wonder what they're gonna do with that i, I i've watched it i've wondered like what the kind of multiple character switching stuff is really going to bring to it that's going to make it feel any different to any of you sort of other stuff um because that always sounded inter- interesting on paper but if you're still going to be doing the same hack- hacking minigame over and over again um, I, I don't know what variety that will really bring. Mm. Yeah, it's got invisible cars in it. What? Mm. Yep. Uh, there's just straight up. Uh, if if you play one of the spy classes, you have access to uh, a spy car, which has rocket launchers and an, a cloaking device and other stuff. So uh, <laughs> what? that's not hacking. I know it seems to have veered. I, yeah, that stuff just turned me off completely. I was, I was like, "Oh, it's just a just an open world in which nonsense happens." Then, yeah, you can mm. hop, on, uh, hop on big delivery drones and then just fly them around the city, um, and no one will stop you. Apparently, uh, I don't know. It might, it might be fun, but yeah, I, I got the same tonal problem with it actually from what they've shown so far. And um, Chris, if you saw it for us, and he was pretty underwhelmed by it. Um, but we'll we'll see. What else was there? Well, I, actually, one of the games that was showcased is a game I've been playing, uh, which is Hyperscape, hmm. uh, which is Ubisoft's new free-to-play battle royale game. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's a very slickly made one of those. Um, uh, but the fact that, you, you know, you have to think of it primarily as one of those sort of expresses the emerging limitations of the genre, I think, to excite right. me. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's not. It's 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 got some innovations in that. Um, so it's set in this uh, cityscape, which is within the fiction, a virtual cityscape. Um, and while the fiction itself is not doesn't do anything particular to wow me, it does allow the game just to sort of throw away the rules of reality and bestow mm. really outlandish power ups, and uh, you can turn into a ball. Um, other things uh, in ways you know, which other games with a kind of more kind of conscientiously realistic in inverted commas um, scenario might fail to pull off convincingly. Um, I think the thing that I like about it most is quite a subtle change. And I don't know that these sort of subtle changes are really enough currently to draw players away from the big existing already well-polished exemplars of this, uh, of the battle royale genre. But um, it changes the manner in which you sort of scale up the power curve during a single match. So rather than going out and uh, finding new, bigger weapons, um, which is generally the motivation for moving around these sort of large maps in any battle royale game, you're actually better served by just sticking with whatever weapons you find first and whatever power-ups you find first. Because when you pick up duplicates of those, it fuses with them and significantly enhances their effects. And this is interesting because it not only means that you can't just sort of luck out by, you know, dropping onto a sniper rifle right at the beginning of the game and then just staying in the same spot for the entire match, but it also means that you you're encouraged to uh, really stick with the weapons that you might normally discard 
Like the the first weapons you find, you might normally just throw away and you know and get a sniper rifle instead or something you're just more familiar with. But in this, because you have the chance to upgrade them, you're more likely just to to plow ahead with the same weapons, and so it encourages you to play around more with the arsenal. Mm. But it also means that you communicate more with your teammates and ensure that you have different weapons and power ups from each other, so that you aren't then competing for the same duplicates as you move around the map. And that's uh, that actually was incredibly effective it did change the way that we thought about the environment and where we would go and what we would do and there's also some other end of match stuff where you sort of you i think you can win by just being the last man standing as with all battle royals but i think you can also win by optionally holding on to a crown which spawns at the at the um sort of end stage of the game uh i think if you hold on to it for 30 seconds you win but I mean, mm. it's it's just another way of forcing people out of out of cover, basically, um, uh, and that's uh, I think that's good. Uh, I think that's all fun. <laughs> I don't I don't know whether it's enough. It all feels very clean and anodyne. The virtual city itself, because it's a virtual city, um, it just doesn't feel lived in in any way, and so it feels really kind of. It might as well just be a white box of polygons, really, than a, than a city. Yeah. Um, I, don't know. I said it, uh, I, I did see this. This is probably the only trailer I did see, and possibly because it leaked. Um, and I did think that the I quite like the VR setup as a conceit for Battle Royale, partly mm-hmm. because that's effectively what Fortnite is now. Like Fortnite yeah. is about as close to, uh, you know, Ready Player One style uh, VR landscape as exists in games at the moment. I'm not saying it's a good thing necessarily, uh, but in terms of just this kind of nonsense mishmash of pop culture and and things that are popular and if you want a deadpool skin you can be deadpool if you want a batman skin you can be batman whatever it is like that particular vision for what like um multiplayer service entertainment looks like um lends itself well to this genre i think and that's a way to do it certainly a way to do it um and so i quite like the conceit that you know, why Why pretend to just make it a VR environment and one day perhaps we will engage with it in VR because of Gabe's brain cable. Um, but but for now, it's a, yeah, it's a solid kind of conceit for a game like this, I think. Did you, um, I, I want to note it because I think it's important to note, like, did you find that the UB reveals were overshadowed by the broader things that are happening at that company at the moment in terms of the various abuse allegations and the resignations of so many senior producers and, and leaders? Well, not within the context of the presentation itself, particularly because um, it didn't mentioned. refer to it <laughs> yeah. at all. Um, right. But I mean, I, I feel a little bit sorry for their their sort of marketing messaging team around this because it's sort of there was no right move for them to make. I don't think any um, anything would have had a good uh, good effect. To mm. I don't I don't think anything would have been enough, frankly. Um, I think they probably decided that they are better off speaking with their actions. They did, um, they did post a, a very direct and frank statement uh, about this and said that their presentation had been recorded before these allegations had sort of mm-hmm. reached whatever uh, conclusion. Um, so they weren't. That's why they weren't included in the stream. People have been very skeptical about that and said, "Well, you know, that they could have they could have recorded like a, a ten second clip or something like this." But I don't really know that that's I don't know that that's better than just putting a statement out there. I guess there is a sort of cowardice 
uh, in divorcing the two things. Yeah. But at the same time, they are divorced. Like the two, it, I mean, if you consider that the, the games, the products that this company make have been made by thousands of people who probably aren't sexual predators, then perhaps there is uh, a reason to to separate the two things and allow those people's work to stand on its own merits and also have a separate, um, you know, address to the to the to the circumstances. Um, and that's what they did, but. It, but obviously, um, people were not satisfied with this, and, yeah. and perhaps rightly. I don't really know what the right thing to do is. It feels it's it's a horrible situation for literally everybody involved. It is, and the reason I mention it is just because obviously I think it's I think you want like I I kind of agree to the extent that I think it's sort of worth you know for example talking about their games, see that question raised as well. Like, is it even is it even appropriate to talk about their products? And I've some first hand experience of Ubisoft Studios, and and I. The impression I got is holy shit, a lot of people work there, and mm. their particular studio model, um, yeah, you know, like it or loathe, it does, um, you know, house a huge amount of people in the industry who often do very narrow tasks on these games, um, and a lot of that work is, I think, because of the scope of the games that Ubisoft tends to make, quite hard to pass sometimes. So it's easy to kind of gloss if, if to you know to glaze over during the credits of an assassin's creed which was made by six different studios or something in thousands and thousands of people so i think it is still important that those people get to see their work be celebrated um but obviously the failings of leadership are, are what they are and are horrible but yeah. I, I just kind of wanted to say make sure that we'd acknowledged it at least because yeah it is certainly a thing and and the games themselves are interesting and as i say kind of worth discussing for the sake of the people who've poured their heart and souls into them without any involvement in things that have been going on um but i hope that the i hope that the statements that we have made and the actions that have been taken so far are the well i suppose there's no and this is the thing perhaps the frustrating thing there's probably really no external sign that that can generate yeah. um short of the absence of these allegations in the future and you know i just <clears throat> so i guess this is a kind of abstract hope but i just hope that the change that needs to take place takes place and those people feel more safe at their jobs basically that's you know the long and short of it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, does, it is encouraging that they've made uh, there've been so many resignations and firings at the top, and they've been pretty open about how they're going to restructure their what they call the editorial team, which seems to be like the the lead creative team that floats between yeah. studios and projects. Um, and that's good, but like you say. Um, the evidence of follow through will be uh, a lack of evidence of anything going wrong, which is very difficult to highlight. So it's it's uh, it's it's going to be hard to tell if these changes are going to be positive yeah. or or really sincere. You know, it's yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Is that what you've been playing this week, Marsh Hyperscape? Or uh, I played two other games as well, Ooh. actually. Um, but but uh, I have very very small amounts to say about them. So hopefully combined they will equal a single take. Um, <laughs> so the other game, which is related uh, that I've been playing, is Rocket Arena, hmm. uh, uh, which is a a three v three competitive game from EA. Actually, the other the other the other one. Why it's <laughs> the other one? Um, EA, the other one. <laughs> 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 uh yeah so it's a 3v3 competitive game everybody has rocket launchers i don't know actually do you guys know what the history of this game is because uh, i thought it was like a a 
a, a polished version of the Quake mod of the same name, but it doesn't seem to share really any that much DNA with it. No, I don't think I do. I have no idea. Well, <laughs> there you go. Um, it, it's a third-person game, so that's its main difference from the, the Quake mod. Uh, I think at some point during its development, it was first-person, though, because I saw like an old article by Chris Livingston, no less, in which he talks about it as being a first-person game. But anyway, it's, it has this sort of slightly spongy, plonky, floaty movement in the way that certain third-person games do, um, which is not necessarily bad. I do quite like it. Uh, but it certainly doesn't try to be the sort of to capture that unfettered frenetic speed of you know the Quake Three era of uh, deathmatch. Um, uh, in fact, like that that original Rocket Arena, that was really about sort of uh, tweaking deathmatch so that its fundamental change was that that players were set on an equal footing and they had the same weapons each mm. round and they didn't need to pick up resources. Um, but this is a much more radical departure from that, even if, I mean, maybe it doesn't share any kind of DNA. So comparing the two is possibly asinine, but it's really much more about rockets themselves, um, using them to propel yourself around the Reno, you you know, with, uh, just firing them beneath you or, uh, using them to propel your, your enemies out of the arena. Um, Mm. the other difference is that it's not deathmatch because there is literally no death at all in the game. Uh, instead, when you hit an enemy, you sort of build up this this their personal vulnerability bar, and the right. higher it goes, the further they fly oh, when you hit them subsequently. Yes, uh, and and so when it's sort of maxed out, they just sort of float and wobble away from the ground, and uh, a single shot will then send them tumbling out of the arena. Um, although it's it's actually possible to knock people out of the arena well before that point. Um, and it's, I, I think that uh, is a really cool, fun way of having projectile combat, which doesn't involve bloodshed. Um, it's really kind of mechanically different from uh, other kinds of shooting scenarios. Um, I'm not so sold on the rest of the game that they built around that, which is unfortunately a, why well, say unfortunately, it's a hero shooter. Um, so everybody's rockets do slightly different things, you know, one guys rockets explode when you release the mouse or you know somebody else fires faster but does less damage and everybody's got different abilities which are quite you know quite dramatic somebody has a clone of themselves somebody can turn themselves into a manta ray that kind of thing um and (laughs) they're all on cooldowns and um wait and all of that slow down you you went through like (laughs) heavy rocket submachine gun rocket manta ray what does the manta ray person do and why is that Um, useful uh, it it makes you hard to hit primarily, uh, and you just sort of slide around until you choose not to be a manta ray anymore. But that's it's a good way because I mean you know if in this kind of exchange of rocket fire, if you want to become a manta ray, you can just slither off somewhere. Perfect. And then, yeah. And your cooldowns have cooled down by the time you become a human again. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. So, yeah. Sure. And all that, all of that's I I don't really get a sense of how balanced all this stuff is. Um, and in some ways, I don't really care anymore. <laughs> like, mm. I, just, I really pine for the days when a single mechanic could be explored in its purity without the need for this sort of gigantic meta and all the stuff, all the you know, all the asymmetry which needs constant rebalancing and balancing. Where's Ricochet 2, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, that's, it's obviously not made for me because it's made 
very explicitly for children. Uh, mm. It's uh, the aesthetic of it is that of like um, uh, a pre preteen cartoon show, um, which is you know off putting for me, but probably of a benefit for anybody who wants to buy something for their kids, which doesn't have a huge amount of explicit violence in it. Um, however, for those people. Um, I would say, despite being a full price game, it is full of microtransactable cosmetic bullshit. So, buyer, be the fuck aware. Shit. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, I quite liked it. Finally, so the, my final third of a take is that I played uh, Death Stranding a tiny bit. <gasps> oh, I wanted to know what you thought about this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been discussed fully on the pod already, so I don't really have... I, I kind of agree with what everybody has already oh. said about it at length. And, um, but but I will say one thing, which is that I've actually been pretty ill recently with some sort of weird stomach gut issue. And so it's really nice to be able to lie back with a control pad rather than hunch over my keyboard. And, uh, and you know, lying back in my chair, I can play with my burbling abdomen fully and disgustingly distended and uh, <laughs> as you start Death Stranding there's this cinematic in which your character rocks up on a motorbike and as he reaches the uh, as he reaches the sort of center frame of the of the the, the cinematic the con- control pad that was resting on my belly started rumbling and it, it set off this sympathetic chain reaction <laughs> causing me to issue just this loud rippling fart quite quite unbidden <laughs> And I feel like that stands as, as my full contribution to the Death Stranding discourse, to be honest. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't ready for that. I don't think you were ready for that either, to be honest. Yeah. That's, yeah, wow. You you were moved by Hideo Kojima there, and I think that's quite profound. <laughs> I certainly had a movement. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is very good. I'm very I'm, I'm, I'm like I, I was ready for you to I don't know invade against it, bring your the full force of your uh, discontent, or to su- have found some surprising value in it and to surprise us in that way. And this is just not the surprise I was expecting, and so I'm delighted. Basically, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm <laughs> I hope Hideo Hideo feels the same way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what have you been playing, Tom? I've been playing chess. 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 Wow. Not a new game, but a good one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you should do marketing for chess. <laughs> That's the strap line. Um, yeah, so this is definitely one of those sort of aspirational hobbies that a lot of people, I think, have picked up during lockdown. Like, oh, I'm going to learn to play the piano. Or, oh, I'm going to learn French. And for me, it's, oh, I'm going to learn chess. That's what I've decided. Sort of last week, I just woke up one morning and I was like, yes, this is going to be my next month. Um, and what I found is that there are, uh, 2020, if you just want to get into something and learn about it, it's so, so easy to do. So like the, the online resources available to you, if the thing is vaguely popular, it's just astonishing. Like years ago, I'd have had to buy books and stuff. Um, but now I can just watch grandmasters playing on YouTube. Um, though I, I gradually found my level, which is, um, a series of lectures by grandmasters, uh, in which they literally teach five-year-olds, uh, about how to... <laughs> about chess openings and things and that is exactly my level i've discovered i know where the, where the pieces go but i don't know what to do with them um but i found just a, a series of like internet resources and free online games and paid for online games that, that give you a good chess experience uh the most premium one is called chess ultra 
Um, mm. And Chess Ultra, you find it on Steam. It's only a few quid at the moment, I think, because it's on sale. Um, but it's 10 gigabytes of meticulously modelled shiny wood. And uh, <laughs> uh, the chess boards are set in ridiculously kind of like there's one set in Mulholland Drive, there's another one set in some Greek, Greek ruins, and another one is set in just kind of like uh, a place with tall-backed smoking chairs and uh, like a cigar smoking to one side, and uh, some books, some like classic books like Don Quixote to one side, and that kind of. It sells a very specific kind of ridiculous high-class notion of what chess is. Chess lifestyle. Chess lifestyle. Presumably. Yes. You mean Mulholland Drive, the geographic location, rather than the David Lynch? <laughs> that would be, be fantastic, though. Um, uh, Silencio. <laughs> uh, there's also, there's just throw this in there. There's um, there's also a level just set in hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the the pieces are just these demonic pieces. It's like completely odds with the tone of the rest of the game. Um, so. You th- you think you've been this quite tame and very kind of respectful uh, take on chess, and then the, the, sure, go to hell. Um, they, and they also sell like sort of uh, pieces and boards as kind of microtransactions, but it's really not intrusive. Um, so that's your sort of lavish if you really want to feel like you're in hell <laughs> <laughs> playing chess. Playing chess, then um, that's that's one that you want. I can't at all testify to the quality of the AI because I'm such a noob at the game that I've no idea like what kind of high level challenge it, it presents but um, it's really pleasant and it kind of gives you uh, a lot of different difficulty levels to work up through um, and that's really good but uh, if you don't want to pay any money um, you can download something called Lucas Chess and this is um, it's very kind of lo-fi just a Windows program uh, with a chessboard, but it contains 40 different chess engines, uh, importantly, 10 of which are aimed at children. Uh, so I was able to like take the, the, the lessons I've been taught by grandmasters to children into those AI situations. Um, and at the moment, I'm stuck on monkey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm going to graduate up through the levels of the, of the child AI. Uh, I'll bring it up now just to see if I can uh, actually list them. Uh, play against an engine opponent. Opponents are young players. Monkey, donkey, bull, wolf, lion, rat, snake, and Stephen. One day I will have the I'll have the chess knowledge and theory uh, and fundamentals to beat Stephen, and that's before I move on to the thirty other game engines that are actually designed to adults and probably can beat most players. <laughs> chess AI is amazing now, um, but that's it's completely free. You can install any chess engine you want on it as well. There's a huge resource online for different different chesses. Um, I don't know if they're all named after people like Stephen, um, but I'd hope they are. Uh, and so, yeah, so you could, you all of that, if you want to play it online a lot, um, so a site called Lichess, which is just L-I-C-H-E-S-S dot com. Uh, that's really popular in terms of, and it has like proper rankings and stuff. Um, and also chess.com originally uh, is also like a really strong, like 40 million people signed up to it. And that has a strong ranking systems as well. So you can actually start at a novice level and actually improve your game by playing other players as well and that's all uh they're free as far as i can tell actually i've not signed up to, to them yet but um it seems like you can get a lot of stuff just by signing up without paying anything um so yeah that's been my adventure as a chess on on the internet um this, this last couple of weeks uh, and i just want to be happy that this is an ancient game that is actually quite obtuse and difficult to get into uh but thanks to the just free resources online now you can you can uh, fight Stephen. <laughs> and hopefully one day and, and, and hopefully use the same resources to teach your children to one day defeat Stephen as well yeah I mean I sure they could defeat me I'm sure at the moment. <laughs> no, no, yeah. 
<laughs> in hell. Like, uh, that is, I, I actually really appreciate knowing now what the state of online chess is in 2020. That's really good. Yeah, it's, it's the game's fucking hard. Chris, it's a very difficult yeah. game. Yeah, um, I sort of didn't believe it until I, I I knew it was hard by reputation, but not until you actually sort of start reading. Like there are one thousand three hundred plus openings and variations that you could learn, and there's many more systems, and there are different disciplines for the mid game, the end game, um, and just kind of wading into this world has been sort of terrifying, but also fascinating at the same time because it is it's a fully deterministic turn based tactics game. Um, so obviously, obviously there's no dice rolls or health bars or anything so it's, it's purely how far can you see ahead and how well can you predict your opponent yeah and how well how well do you actually kind of understand the patterns in front of you um which requires huge amounts of experience i was reading how grandma to reach grandmaster level you just have to go full time and it takes years and years and it's really difficult um but it's great you could just watch um i watched uh, gary kasparov playing a 13 year old who got a draw off him <laughs> um and that 13 year old oh, yeah. is now uh the best player in the world by a considerable margin. Um, I think his name is Carlson. Let me just check that. I that wrong. Uh, it's worth watching his games. He's great. Um, yeah, so that's the state of chess. And it's a, yeah, Magnus Carlson. He's very good. Um, yeah, that's the state of chess at the moment. And uh, I never thought I would say that on this podcast. <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> it's a fun lockdown pursuit, is what I would say. And it's you get a lot out of it for no money. Wow. I've always been afraid of chess. I, I, I basically understand, uh, you know, how one moves around in chess but i've never been any particularly good at it partly because i feel like qu- quite quickly it would stop being about um applying strategy to the board and more about recalling already discovered plays and applying them to the situation in front of you is that true or am i well needlessly fearful what's interesting about that is because i like, you know the rules of chess obviously haven't changed in centuries but there are still fashions to the way things are played. So um, at the moment, a lot of grandmaster play, they, they do something called the English opening, which is where you push the pawn in front of your bishop on the left side, um, two squares forwards, and that's the, that's the opening. Whereas previously, like the one I've been learning recently is um, um, called the Queen's Gambit, and there are variants. There's one called the Queen's Gambit accepted and Queen's Gambit declined, depending on whether the black decides to take the pawn you dangle in front of them or not. Um, and that's that, that's a matter of fashion. The way that different players occur with different systems based on those openings um, shown shows that there's just a huge amount of room for expression and um, tactical nuance. And actually, an ability to flip the meta even without you know balance patches or anything like that, just purely through player innovation that has been evolving for hundreds of years. Hmm. Red. Good game. Apparently, it turns out. Just <laughs> <laughs> quite good. It turns out. Did you ever play battle chess? Oh yeah. I love battle chess. There you go. So, okay, so the, I looked into this because um, uh, the original battle chess from like nineteen the late eighties or something is on Steam as well. You can buy that. Um, is it? Yeah. Fuck. Um, but also, uh, inevitably, Dream I, there's a Warhammer forty thousand version Whoa. called Ooh. Regicide. Um, <laughs> and Regic- Regicide is hilarious because it, Regicide is itself. A different game mode that basically isn't chess even though it sort of looks like chess so in regicide all your pawns are space marines and they can shoot other pawns <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you can sort of focus fire and, and chip off uh you know chip off pawns here and there um but the actual chess moves like you know your traditional capture moves are insta kills with uh gory animations where you sort of turn orcs into mulch 
Um, that's what chess is about. Yeah. That's why I played Battle Chess. I didn't play it for the actual strategy or, or the actual game. I just wanted to see all the diff animations. Yeah, that's quite right. Uh, Battle Chess is really good fun. Um, for the regicide, there is also normal chess in there. Um, why would you do that, though? <laughs> when you can play you know, the free version, that's actually way better. I think, yeah, because I think I've played chess throughout my life because I played it quite a bit when I was a kid. But it's always been an exercise in trying to keep playing chess and not be drawn instead into a game where you can double jump. Um, <laughs> yeah, <basically. laughs> you know, like I feel like the grand the chess grandmasters of ages past didn't have to compete with the fact that like they've also got Sonic Two, um, yeah, <laughs> and they could play Sonic Two. And that's got a cool uh, soundtrack and everything. It does, yeah. It's got music, it's got robots, it's got jumping. You know, the, all of the other things about because I, you know, you obviously see the argument a lot that chess is such a remarkable kind of cultural object because of its complexity and the kind of the way it can be used as a cultural conversation in its own right between some of the most talented people on earth and that's definitely true but you you, you there's no gun there is no gun yeah. <laughs> you know that's what regicide fixes it doesn't have a, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have a story um <laughs> you know uh but, oh wow yeah do you think you will do you think you will stay on this road tom do you think you will defeat steven or do you think this is like i don't know you're kind of a gatsby-ish kind of pursuit um well i bought a chessboard now and it arrived today and Ooh. it's really just a really nice thing. And mm. uh, I've also got a couple of books on Kindle and um, like a book of chess puzzles. So I'm going to be doing that a lot to get away from screens. And nice. see, how, see how far I get, really. We should we should start some sort of um, podcast about moving tiny pieces around on a board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could add a chess section to me as one thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the ultimate. Yeah, we, we, that's the, that must be the, the, the kind of um, like sort of anime finale final form of a warhammer podcast is becoming <laughs> a chess podcast um I'll talk about Go as well that's a good game yeah hell yeah what are the uh, in um regicide what are the other uh, equivalents for the the pieces what's a bishop in regicide for example uh or a rook space so chaplain surely your bishops are i think heavy weapons experts We've got yeah, heavy bolters yeah. and they they mulch a guy in, in diagonals from afar and then slowly walk into their space um, uh, i see so they went for the mechanical uh analogy rather than the uh the mm. name they did uh, i think that the queen is a chaplain and oh. uh the chaplain zaps orcs with lightning um and then they explode that's really good um and the king is just a space marine captain who can't do very much <laughs> but if you do um as kings indeed can't in chess uh, but if you once you win if you actually checkmate the orc you get a bespoke animation for your um space marine captain executing the war boss <laughs> Oh, which is good. Yeah. Checkmate the orc. <laughs> what have you been playing, Chris? Um, so I wanted to steer our little discourse truck, our take bus, our helicopter of opinions back to, I think, a game that we underestimated when we first discussed it on this podcast. Um, and that is Call of Duty Warzone. Oh. The, the, the tackiest and most mainstream of the, the war zones. Um, but a game that has come to occupy uh, an enormous amount of my gaming time that really isn't spent playing Destiny, which is such a you know, constant for me. And that I think for good reason has been slept on for what it kind of truly is, um, which is the inheritor of the legacy of titting around in Battlefield. <laughs> and because, and I think, because I think it's completely natural to approach this game, first and foremost, as a battle royale. Uh, and secondly, it's a Call of Duty game. You know, as a battle royale game, it has some interesting new systems like the going to 
have to fight in the prison toilets to get back into the battlefield. And, you know, it's kind of interaction with Call of Duty's um, broader kind of deep weapon customization system and things like that. Um, and, and it's also a Call of Duty game. We don't know. We talked about, uh, we talked about Modern Warfare uh, a few months ago when I played it, uh, basically because I'd gotten into Warzone. Um, and as a Call of Duty game, it is just profoundly tacky, I think. And I think there's something, it's, it's, it's such, I find it a fascinating and slightly repulsive aesthetic object. Um, and I'll start with that because, you know, there's, it's got the worst skins I have ever seen, ever seen the least appealing characters, the, the gaudiest, they have all these like, uh, like, um, skin packs and things you can buy that are advertised, like, I don't know, rare crisps from the nineties or something like toy promotions for like tv shows that were all themselves promoting toys that didn't exist like there was garish kind of fucking half of them look like signs for vape shops from hell like this <laughs> it's fucking awful and yet somehow amazing like this you know you get to level 70 on the latest battle pass you can have a helicopter that looks like it belongs to guy fieri and like <laughs> The, the 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 industry broadly has gotten pretty good at like challenging what it means to like you know uh flex your brand in a bunch of different ways to sell people stuff basically fortnite obviously ships in pop culture repackages it in fortnite's art style and sells it and it becomes this big kind of uh theme park adventure of, of different ips kind of kids playing in that uh, you know, and Valorant is, is doing a bunch of stuff with is finding inventive ways of doing skins for guns. Basically, now you can buy a dragon that spits fire at people that replaces your sniper rifle, stuff like that. The Call of Duty is just the tackiest thing on earth. And I think because of that, it's really easy to dismiss the whole thing as both expensive and cheap. And there's some things about it that are baffling to me, like the fact that it's like 220 gig. And every time they update the single player or the other multiplayer modes. Everyone who just wants to play Warzone, which is free, unlike those other modes, has to re-download 80 to 200 gig worth of oh game. My God. The fact that every time they patch it, even 200 meg, the game has to reinstall every shader it's ever dreamed of, or it doesn't work. Like It's such a shonky, weird, kind of um, ratly, games-of-service nightmare thing. But, and this is like the big, the big but, and I cannot lie, uh, of this. It's also really fucking good. And it's good when you break out of the play style that it tries to enforce on you, which is, again, the, the sort of PUBG Battle Royale rhythm, and you realize what it actually is, which is the feeling of being hanging out with your mates on a Battlefield 2 server circa 2003, 2004, where the battle around you was so big and so inconsequential, it didn't really matter what you did, and you can, and it's just a game about finding out what happens if you stick C4 on a Jeep and drive it into something else, or what happens if you try and switch seats in a helicopter so that you can shoot from the side of the helicopter and get back into the pilot seat to, you know, to fly off in a different direction, which is also has in common with Halo, like original Halo, where, yeah, technically there's a multiplayer game to play there, but you're really titting about with the vehicles and the physics and the weapons. And there's some magic formula of buggies, helicopter type vehicles and sticky bombs that is just fun like that is just a combination that works and it has all of those things and battlefield subsequently has moved on in this different direction where those games are pretty hectic now quite fraught and they're quite good at creating these sorts of moments of sort of military spectacle 
but you, you're always kind of doing something and it will find ways to spawn you closer to the front line. And a concerted design effort was put in place to not make those maps these sorts of quite loose feeling spaces that you just kind of do stuff in until it ends. Like my experience of classic battlefield was always that like maybe 10% of the players are actually playing the objectives. Everyone else is just pursuing whatever their personal idea of success looks like in that environment, whether it's sniping from the back (laughs) of the map or running people over in a Jeep or something. And that is exactly what Warzone is. And that, it, that I don't know, it's fine. I'm finding it so much fun at the moment. Like I'm, I'm finding the, the, the little pull of actually looking into loadouts and figuring out how to play it properly. But what we do, and I play it a lot with um, my friend Paul. Uh, Paul's got kind of a friend of pod. And we, almost every day now. And you get into these rhythms. Like a lot of our game circles around the game's trucks. Because Warzone, again, because it's a expensive, lavish, shonky, trashy mess. It hasn't really had. It has vehicles, and they're quite powerful, honking vehicles. It also doesn't really have physics for them, so you can drive them off a cliff and they'll be fine. They just sort of bounce and roll across the environment like Tonka toys, and you can. Um, but you know, so a lot of the plan is often to get a truck and just drive into the countryside and run people over, and. Um, you know, it's sound balance is kind of weird. So like yesterday I managed to very, 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 very slowly land a helicopter on a sniper who was hiding on a hillside in a ghillie suit, yeah. watching someone else and just, just nut him with the front of the helicopter to death. And that was very, very, very funny. And it was Guy Fieri's helicopter as well. And so, oh, yeah. And like, cause I appreciate like when the game first came out, people started talking about it. It was very much like, this is Call of Duty's Battle Royale. How does it weigh up? I guess it's fine, but it has... It's a it's a secret gem that game. I really love it. <laughs> it's um, I actually maybe I'll, I'll send you a link. I do this. I do occasionally put unlisted uh, game clips on my YouTube to share with friends. But I made a little supercut of just one night that me and Paul spent in Call of in um in Warzone titting about, and it's genuinely like the most fun I've had in a multiplayer game in fucking ages because it's just so um it's just a little freeform you know gun adventure uh, where people starring the world's least likable cast of British <laughs> army twats. Like, and, but that is again, part of the charm. Like you, you get dropped into this fucking warm up zone at the beginning, which is pointless because you spent half of it parachuting, half of it getting shot by the people with a random selection of guns and you're all running around and dying. And then at the end of it, fucking Captain Price is not Captain Price. One of the other ones says, all right, stop mucking about. It's time to go to the war zone. And it's like, we weren't mu- like, we, it's not the fucking playground. It like arrives like a PE teacher to blow the whistle and tell you to stop titting around. I'm pretty sure that's not how the army works. Maybe it is. <laughs> like, and then you get yeah. Oh, it's. I don't know if I'm selling it necessarily, but there's just yeah. Something. You're making me regret uninstalling it. Yeah. Now. Oh god, because you've got another 220 gig to download if you want to play yeah. it with us. Like yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's just. Um, it's the it's the best hangout shit I've played in ages, and it yeah, like I say, it's captured something that I think Battlefield has moved on from in trying to become a more coherent game. And if anything, it's vast, bizarre tackiness, which I think is off-putting. Genuinely, like I, the if you wanna, I wanna know who goes into the store for that game and says, yeah, I'm gonna buy the skin pack marked Rattlesnake, which has like, I mean, they're they're advertised like gladiators from the itv tv show gladiator but somehow like 
American and worse. <laughs> I did. Uh, I did see that they've uh, decided to change the name of the Border War skin oh, that they had. Me, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just like some real effort is put into packaging these things up, and they're just awful. <laughs> like, you know, the, there's like the, one of the really common skins you see makes the guns sort of look like uh, lavender and cyan plastic nerf guns but they also have this kind of like opalescent oil slick effect on the metal areas and it's just the worst it looks like an act it looks like a rendering error and it's like this is the most like this is such an expensive uh production the part of me i think i think honestly for me it goes full circle and for some reason that becomes charming um i don't know why <laughs> i don't know why it's like glitch art or something yeah it's it's comforting in the way that a Happy Meal is comforting, I think, aesthetically. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. But <laughs> what I mean is, like, you know it's bad, but, like, that's good, actually. Yeah. I guess. Anyway, it's got C4s and trucks, and you can you can change your beep beep on the truck to a very bad ride for Valkyrie's MIDI thing, and that's good, too. Is that can you do that by plugging in any MIDI? No, no, no. It's a, you pay money oh, for yeah, that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you yeah, and in the same can also be applied to Guy Fieri's helicopter, um, if you wish. Um, but yeah, no, it's a genuine drama. There's something really fun about um, someone being dead and spectating your friend trying to get enough money to buy you back. That that is a good system. I like. That. <laughs> how much? Uh, how much of the 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 charm you're finding in it do you think is the actual game or is it more that it's facilitating an opportunity for you to sort of hang out with your mates because you can't actually hang out with your mates currently um i think that's a reasonable observation i think so i think and you know i've spent a lot of time playing games with paul basically but like one-on-one -on -one playing games with friends has been a big way for me to socialize in the last couple of months and the big games for that have been hunt showdown valorant Mordhau this um a little bit destiny and i think all of those games have something to offer and all of those games are games apart from destiny are games that i'm not hugely compelled to play by myself so i think i would be having a brilliant time with this in co-op regardless of the present circumstances um but i don't think that it's a game that you play uh solo necessarily Although, actually, like, I think there is fun to be had with the sandboxiness of it. Actually, I think that's one of its big strengths. Like, the map is absolutely fucking gigantic. It's like 160 players on a huge map. Um, and there are vehicles crisscrossing it. And that means that there are viable playstyles that are very different to the things you would normally do in a Battle Royale game and actually really satisfying. Like, um, you can occasionally find these loadout drops that allow you to pick one of the loadouts that you've built for Call of Duty's other multiplayer mode. And I quite like doing my best to get an anti-aircraft missile launcher because even though it's useless in the kinds of fights that the Battle Royale will try and funnel you into, pretty often you're going to see a team escaping across the map in a helicopter. And if you can get that missile off at the right time, you've just team wiped someone. And it's very funny. The other thing it does, the other thing it does, and I forgot to mention this, it's very well implemented. When you kill someone, you get their open mic for like two seconds. <laughs> 
And I'd forgot, I should have mentioned this earlier. It's the other brilliant thing about it. And actually, it's really cleverly integrated so that Shadow Play, which is otherwise recording your highlights and things, uh, shuts off so that it preserves the privacy of people. It won't record that little bit of audio, but you do hear it. And um, I have heard the best swearing in, in French, in Italian, in languages I didn't recognize. Um, you know, yesterday I, I chased a guy, I downed a guy and he went into a house and he had a little medical kit that allowed him to revive himself, but he didn't expect me to run into the house after him and then pummel him to death with the butt of my gun. Classic Call of Duty uh, play. But what I got to enjoy was hitting him and then just hearing a British stranger I don't know go, oh, bollocks, bollocks, bollocks. <laughs> 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 and um or hearing people go like oh fuck you <laughs> it's so good it's so good or like <laughs> yesterday when i landed a helicopter on someone yesterday i just heard this what the fuck and it was so <laughs> it's just so good uh it's like the worst and the best i like it a lot and i would probably oh, play it for myself for that purpose <laughs> what things have you said that other people have uh, been delighted to hear so i don't i don't know because i don't know if you need if it just opens your mic regardless or if it opens your mic if you're already using in-game voice because if if um uh uh if it if it is open mic anyway it's definitely going to be um um there's quite probably a lot of um oh shit because i'm often quite surprised um um the i think the there's quite a lot of um i have a tendency when surprised in a game to become more polite which is a strange trait but to say like oh hello and then die like immediately <laughs> so um so that's probably quite <laughs> been heard by some people i imagine as they or actually <laughs> I, uh, um the other thing i say a lot is oh there's a dickhead so I think I think there's that's probably also uh, been transmitted across the globe on my behalf by uh, by the Activision service. So good use of everyone's resources. <laughs> that's that's all I have to say about Call of Duty Warzone. Shall we do uh, some questions from questions? Yes. Yeah, so let's do exactly two questions and then go to sleep. Okay. Marsh. I, I'm down with that. Okay. Cool. Our first question comes from uh, Neberjoth, who writes, Hello, Crowbars. Two of the games discussed on the pod quite a lot lately are Deep Rock Galactic, which recently exited Early Access, and Satisfactory, which is still in Early Access. Both of these games are published by Coffee Stain Publishing. Coffee Stain Studios develop Satisfactory directly, while they have also invested significantly in a minority stake in Ghost Ship Games, which develops Deep Rock. I play both of these games heavily, having discovered both through the pod, and love them but I'm a bit concerned as both games are also quite explicitly about extractive capitalist activity, whether it is the mass extermination of native fauna while pulling out tons of mineral ore in DRG or the massive deforestation and belching factories of satisfactory. These games are fundamentally about unfettered capitalist behavior that never present decision trees to allow for anything less than complete acquisitive annihilation of an ecosystem. Do you think the coffee stain publishing could possibly be a front for a shadowy ideologically conservative think tank or investment cabal attempting to push a specific ideology of pure capitalism? If they're actually just innocent liberals from a Swedish university as their bio claims, is there another perhaps bigger or more established game developer that might be insidiously framing their ideologies into a game with the aim of normalizing something with political motivation? And that's from Nebajoth asking the real questions about dwarves. 
Well, given that Coffee Stain's uh, first uh, and greatest success was Goat Simulator, uh, <laughs> slightly harder to see the capitalist metaphor inherent in that, apart from the fact that it was possibly a very, very profitable game to make. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think... But aren't all games really about unfettered capitalist exploitation? I think we've, this has come up on the podcast before, where uh, just the, the way that games are structured around usually the player being a self who mm. uh has uses you know uses up the resources of the environment they they're structured as per the capitalist ideal generally speaking yeah well i mean all game you know the majority of single player games to some extent are about occupying a a world where you are the only active um participant in a kind of uh private acquisitive wank universe and um that is the only safe environment in which it is possible to enjoy the mechanisms of, of that kind of acquisition and retain your moral integrity. If, you know, games are a kind of the safe place in which to do things that in other contexts would be deeply immoral or even evil, you know? Mm. Like yesterday, I, like I said earlier, very slowly crushed a man with a helicopter, a Guy Fieri's helicopter, no less. I can't do that. The kind of thing that Ian Duncan Smith would propose. Exactly. No less. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I got my most centrist takes out, you know, earlier in this <laughs> very podcast. But, you know, to go further right than that, I need a video game to let me slowly dip a flame insignia helicopter onto an innocent gilly man's head um, <laughs> in the war zone. Uh, you know, behavior I would not exhibit in real life because I'm too shy. I was trying to think of um, like farming sims or something like Stardew Valley, where you're, you're actually kind of cultivating your own existence mm. uh, in cooperation with the land. But also a big part of that game is selling your stuff to <laughs> stay alive. Um, so it's all it's, it's all about markets as well, I suppose. It's just uh, at least you're not at least you're sort of creating resource from the earth um, rather than just chipping away at everything and stealing it forever. Right. Like I mean, it's kind of one of the good things about games is they take away the consequences of these systems being applied to people's actual lives. Yeah, so you're not em employing low-wage labor to work on your farm in Stardew Valley. So I, I often find the way games are sort of skirt around the uglier aspects of um, uh, uh, that issue quite funny. I think like stuff like SimCity and The Sims are particularly guilty of this, um, where they kind of give you all the, the shiny benefits of a uh, you know, market-driven capitalist society and show none of the actual downsides for anyone. <laughs> I'm trying to think about games that answer the question of, of deliberately trying to advance uh, an agenda. And I'm sure there are examples of this. I mean, there are kind of, you know, obvious examples in terms of like America's army and things in the past and um, games that had like a military recruitment angle to them, or at least part funded by hmm. military marketing, for want of a better word. But in terms of actually trying to instill an ideology on purpose for the for the with the aim of seeing that ideology represented more broadly in the world, there mm. have been a couple of eco games. I, there was one which was uh, about wetlands management, which was specifically about you know uh, being able to uh, m make money off the wetlands in a sustainable way, which encouraged the preservation of uh, animal welfare and mm. uh, such. Um, and of course, there was famously, there's been quite a few serious games in, in inverted commas, which um, uh, have approached ecological or uh, 
or political things from a sort of well-meaning perspective. Oh, I forget the name of it. Was it Fate of the World, which was a, uh, a mm. famous warning uh, against the uh, advancing um, eco-apocalypse that we now face, um, which which set an impossible task of essentially rescuing the world from um, ecological disaster. <laughs> um, I suppose that was uh, didactic in the sense uh, that it was teaching people to act now before it's too late. I guess there's stuff like um, Papers, Please, uh, which is using mechanics to put you in right. a mm. situation that sort of reflects how um, people at a low level of society are victimized in various different ways, including you as an employee, but also the people on the border that you're judging. Yeah, that's a good example, actually, that both the, the sort of the the benign cruelty, not benign, um, the... Um, sort of bureaucratic cruelty. Of yeah, the yes, the sort of um, creeping cruelty of that kind of bureaucratic institution yeah that's a good example because that, that does use the mechanics and it, it it obviously has its hand on the scales in order to make that point but it's not mm. it's not a foregone conclusion it lets you fight it to some extent yeah 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 that's quite a good example uh our next question uh comes from toivo i think i'm pronouncing that correctly he writes uh dear Kreit and crowbar i don't think i'm pronouncing that correctly we live in uncertain times tumultuous times even with unprecedented events such as the sequel to indie point-and-click adventure game Clam Man just outright changing genre to become a Disco Elysium-like RPG! Exclam for emphasis. Wild! Which games do you think could benefit from a genre transition for a sequel? Thanks for the podcasting, Toivo. So, I can't answer his actual question. Okay. But, but, Clam Man came up... Uh, on uh, the Steam trailers recently, and I noted it down, or the Clam Man 2, because it was going to form the second part of my Guess the Genre quiz uh, that yeah. we enjoyed the other week. So... Yeah. <laughs> it's back. Uh, no points for guessing what genre Clam Man 2 is, because that's already been exposed by uh, this questioner. But uh, I will give you a point if you can guess the scenario in which its combatless narrative RPG takes place. It's a specific even time event. E what do you mean even time? Evening time. Oh. How how are we buzzing in? Sorry, I'm very competitive. <laughs> uh yeah, we, we didn't we didn't clear this up the it's last right. time. It's always a shambles. Um <laughs> oh. Evening time event. Dinner? Or tea? Uh, dinner or tea? I'm going to go for... I'm going to go for brushing your teeth. Wrong! Oh, shit! It's open mic night! <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I, st I still haven't added a uh, wrong sound to the soundboard. I should do that yeah. before the next oh, time. But maybe we can have... One, two, three! <laughs> 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 we've got a link that, to the video oh, oh god is that the first is that without context on the podcast that sound as much as we love it no i think we've it's been referenced several times okay that's fine but wait one there's one more quick question uh and this is this is more traditional can you guess the genre of genesis alpha one deluxe edition oh i recognize that name Genesis Alpha One Deluxe Edition. I think the trap here yeah. is going to be some like the trap is always anime fighting games. So I'm not saying that. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna put my my flag mark in the spot marked. I'm gonna wheel my desk over to match three adventure game. Ooh. An intriguing guess, Tom. Oh, I'm torn between two ideas. One is that Genesis Alpha One is some sort of rogue AI on the first person adventure game set on board an abandoned spaceship with blood written on the walls. Um, the other <laughs> is uh, a multiplayer sort of five versus five multi-class uh, science fiction uh, competitive shooter. And I'm going to roll for the first one. Yes! I think you might have cheated there, Tom. Uh, it uh, is a roguelike uh, first-person shooter on a customizable spaceship. Well, I promise I didn't cheat. Right. Well, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know what about the name implied that that's what it would be, but uh, there it is. It's also. I think it might also be multiplayer. So it might be both of your <laughs> answers. Actually, did I make this game? <laughs> yeah, I made it. Anyway, well done, Tom. You've won this pointless round of a pointless quiz. I love it. That's great. Um. Anyway, sorry, toy, 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 po. <laughs> Pretty sure that is <laughs> double sorry. <laughs> uh, monster, sorry. Holy shit! I think uh, Disco Elysium itself should uh, have a a brief genre transition into a karaoke game mm. in which people tunelessly and drunkenly warble British sea power classics. Nice. I think that's just a. a a party that when social distancing allows we can have at your house <laughs> um hmm. i feel like we get the sort of like you know reinvent this game or different developer question quite a lot but i'm not sure what genre changes and i'm fighting every fiber of my being which is screaming at me to make a lazy go-kart joke what what uh, genre would uh, Warzone be if it wasn't uh, a battle royale game? Mm, I think it would be a visual novel about <laughs> encouraging some very broadly drawn British military stereotypes to talk about their feelings. It's it's it would be a game about encouraging men who scream things like "sort them out" um, to maybe sort themselves out. And then they fuck. <laughs> <laughs> right? Only in, that's in the Knights version. That's the sequel. <laughs> I like to see a Crash Bandicoot reimagined as a kind of side-on Lemmings equivalent. Um, <laughs> which you get to kill that character over and over again using increasingly <laughs> elaborate traps. <laughs> <laughs> What would be the victory state of this game? Um, the ultimate annihilation of the Crash Bandicoot and all his millions of clones. <laughs> Ideally, in some sort of fiery pit. It just erases the license and uh, from the existence. That's right. Somehow, and to, to the extent that it never existed, no one knows what a Bandicoot is. <laughs> I'd like. <laughs> I'd like to see the slow evolution of Project Cars into first. Uh, like maybe get a little bit more creative with the genres of car, um, pushing it in more of a hero shooter direction. And then ultimately uh, maybe bringing it out to an isometric perspective, micro machine style, adding magical spells, um, gold acquisition experience points, level up attacks, that kind of thing. And basically in this way, 
trick a whole generation of newly uh, socially distancing Formula One drivers into becoming MOBA players. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> any other any other incredible genre switches that you would suggest? No, I think we've covered all the bases. Karaoke, forgetting bandicoots exist, <laughs> and ruining a game for very serious car people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're right, we've done it. Uh, that's my wish list for 2021. Um, great. Well, that's all the questions we have time for tonight. Uh, if you would like to send us a question for a future episode of the podcast, you can email us at questions at creightoncrowbar.com. You can tweet us at creightoncrowbar. And you can also find the Creighton Crowbar community on our Discord server, the link for which can be found on our website at creightoncrowbar.com. We've got one of them YouTube channels where we upload these episodes, so you can just stare at a picture for an hour and a bit if you'd like. And that's at youtube.com forward slash Creighton Crowbar. Uh, this podcast uh, has been supported uh, with many thanks by our uh, Patreon backers. That sentence was all kinds of wrong, but uh, just going to keep talking uh, because there's no way out but down. And uh, if you'd like to find out more about supporting the podcast and enabling moments like this in my life, then all you need to do is visit patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar. I don't think I missed anything other than to say that I, uh, me, uh, hello, have been Chris Thurston. <laughs> I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Tom Senior. And we still That's... are. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off at a really full-throated honk, and I regret that. <laughs> uh, if only I could be like Hideo Kojima and just draw these things out of you. Um... <laughs> well, when we can finally abandon social distancing, you can come over and gently gently paddle my belly. <laughs> well, like. well, mournfully crooning some British sea power. Yeah, oh, I miss pretending to be a ghost whale or something like that. Not, not true, Hideo Kojima fashion. Not only do I miss human contact, I've also, I think, forgotten what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, it's time to say thanks. thanks, 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 thanks